Trigger Warnings in the episode description. Zöring and Zimmer. This is Jens Zöring, and across from me is Dominic Zimmer, singer, musician, and psychology student here in Germany. In Germany, he's a bit of a star because he appeared on the German equivalent of America's Got Talent and got pretty far. And next to me sits Jens Zöring. Like I did, he studied psychology. He was a guitarist in a band when he was 19. But then he got sentenced for a crime and he spent 33 years in prison. And um, we are talking about some important things in our life. And I think today the topic is going to be love. The biggest of all topics, maybe. Absolutely. Um, Dominic sings about love and I went to prison for love. Yes. And everybody out there listening to us has also some experiences with love. Yes. So. Jens, you went into prison for love. Maybe not all of the listeners know your story and know why you went to prison. And um, so tell us, why do you went to prison for love? Didn't you go for a crime or whatever? Well, I got involved in a horrible crime, really awful crime, um, because of love, because of a relationship with the wrong woman. And um, that's, of course, entirely my own fault. I didn't have to choose her, but I did. Or rather, she chose me. And it all began in the fall of 1984, When I, on my very first day at the University of Virginia, uh, I chatted up um, a fellow student and whom I had already met once before, and she passed me off to her roommate in our dormitory, and that was Elizabeth Hasem. Back then, we were uh, 200, 250 of us living in the honors student dorm with a Academically, the top 5% at the University of Virginia. And uh, the rest of us were all 18-year-olds. Elizabeth was two years older because she had gone to school, uh, to boarding school in England and had run away with her girlfriend and then come back to Virginia and started her um, college education later. So she was two years older than us. And she, in contrast to the rest of us, had had this exciting past running away to Europe and of course at that age a two-year age difference is huge mm. she was 20 we were 18 she was very very popular in the dorm we were all intellectually gifted to some degree uh, because we were honor students but the two of us were also foreigners she was actually a Canadian and had gone to a British boarding school and I was German so we kind of ended up spending more time with each other in the course of the fall semester, talking about philosophy and art and movies, as a matter of fact. And it was actually during one of those conversations toward the end of the fall semester that she disclosed to me that she had loved me. Out of nowhere. Uh, no, it was actually because I had made a joke. Um, I had said that the two of us spent so much time talking with one another, we were like an old married couple. And then she used that opening and announced that she had loved me from afar for a couple of months. And um, yeah. You were 
in love immediately? Immediately. Oh. Well, I was shocked. I was shocked because I considered her to be like a mentor, an older person from whom I could learn. Okay, so you didn't see her as a as a lover. Not in the fall, no, not at all. I thought she was way beyond my league. And I was um, very immature at that time. I was intellectually gifted, but emotionally uh, I not developed as quickly as many others. And that's, of course, a common phenomenon. High IQ, low EQ. Mm -hmm. um, I was a little bit, if I may put it like that, a little bit like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I never had a girlfriend. And I thought this fascinating older student, Elizabeth, was spending time with me because I had interesting ideas about philosophy. And apparently that was not the actual reason. <laughs> so, so, so what did you answer? Did you say, oh, I love you too, out of a reflex or something? No, I, I, I was shocked. And uh, I was especially shocked because she immediately wanted to sleep with me and I had never had sex before. So that was all really mm -hmm. disturbing. And no, I sent her to her bed alone. Of course not. Completely impossible. I had to digest all of that first. Um, but yeah, so um, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because the most popular girl in the dormitory had chosen me. And... Uh, all of our fellow students were completely puzzled mm -hmm. why this fascinating person with this, you know, and she was fascinating, um, why she would choose a nerd like me. And uh, I did not uh, question that either. I should have, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, what followed was a relationship that lasted about 16 months. When, and then we were arrested in England I spent the next three years and eight months after that, from 1986 until um, 1990, fighting extradition from England to the United States on capital murder charges. My lawyers told me that I was under direct threat of the death penalty in the electric chair and that I had virtually no hope of escaping that. And... During this time when I thought that I was going to die a horrible death in the electric chair at a very young age, in my early 20s, at the same time, I had to digest the fact that Elizabeth, the woman for whom I had sacrificed my life and my freedom, um, had never loved me at all. This whole college romance in the fall of 1984 was all pretense and false. How can you be sure that she never loved you? And how did, did, did you know it? Well, there are a couple of things that happened. Um, we were arrested in 1986. And again, I was under threat of the death penalty. So I had to fight extradition. And that took more than three and a half years. Elizabeth did not face the death penalty. So she went back to the United States much earlier in 1987. And then she pleaded guilty to first-degree murder as an accessory before the fact. And she had a sentencing hearing in the fall of 1987, and my family sent me newspaper articles about all the different things she was saying at her own sentencing hearing to reduce her own sentence. And she said the most horrible things about me, unbelievably awful things. Um, maybe the worst was that she said that 
I raped her on the night of her parents' funeral. Mm. And that was by far not the only thing, but I'm, I'm picking one out. So here I was sitting in prison in England, thinking I'm going to die in the electric chair. And the person for whom I'm sitting in prison is trying to get her sentence reduced by telling the court in the United States the most unbelievable lies to make herself look like a victim and make me look like a monster. So that was, that was really, really, really difficult for me. But that wasn't the end of the story. Do you think that she lied because only because she wanted to lower her penalty? Or do you think she did it out of anger? I think both are possible. I think both are possible. Um, at my trial, the uh, second lead investigator in the case, uh, a man of, called Ricky Gardner, testified that when he went to England to question Elizabeth and me, uh, he did not even have enough evidence for an indictment, mm. um, let alone to, to actually bring us to court. He didn't even have enough evidence to put out a search warrant. There was no evidence. And um, uh, as a result of that, I think Elizabeth um, later ended up hating me a lot because I followed through on our plan that I should give a false confession to the police. Because if I had not played the hero then and given this false confession, then they could not have even charged us. So I think, sure, Elizabeth must have hated me very much. Um, but that's not the only reason. Um, I think Elizabeth, and this was testimony given at her sentencing hearing, is a very disturbed young woman. Mm. Back then, I don't know what she's like today. I haven't had any contact with her in decades. But at her sentencing hearing, a psychiatrist called Dr. Robert Showalter testified that she had a particularly severe case of borderline personality disorder. And I think that's probably also um, relevant to her feelings for me because borderline people who suffer from borderline personality disorder have extreme mood swings regarding relationships. Mm -hmm. So that she at one point perhaps thought she loved me and then later on hated me fits that borderline diagnosis. But I question the diagnosis and I question whether she ever loved me at all because 30 years later, um, my lawyer received some documents that shed an entirely different light on my relationship with Elizabeth. What kind of documents? Uh, my lawyer back then was Gail Ball and she received a stack of letters and diaries from Elizabeth and another student at the university back then. I know who he is. He is now living on the West Coast and he's a doctor. And um, she, Elizabeth, had a relationship with this fellow student throughout the entire time that she had a relationship with me. Oh. In other words, she was cheating on me from the very beginning. In the very, well. Uh, in the same month in which she declared to me that she loved me. Um, she went on a skiing vacation with him and uh, had 
sex with him and two men that they picked up in a bar as a foursome. And this happened, again, within a, a couple of weeks of her declaring her undying love for me. And this relationship continued throughout the whole spring of 1985 at the time that this horrible crime happened. And it continued after we were arrested and long after she stopped writing me in prison, she was still writing him long love letters with poems and all sorts of other stuff. And it's clear from this correspondence, from these diaries and letters, that Elizabeth never loved me at all. She wrote about me in these letters and diaries, and it was, you know, she despised me from the very beginning. When you're looking back from now, you have more information and you know about um, these letters and you know about the diagnosis. Were there any signs back then you could have noticed as an 18-year-old that she wouldn't be a good choice? I, I kind of doubt it, honestly. Um, I was very, very immature, first of all, and I was also extremely inexperienced. This was my first girlfriend and I just lacked the knowledge to interpret the signs if they were there. But some of the other students warned me. They warned you? Yes, they did. <laughs> oh. Um, it was specifically a couple of girls, and of course I put off their warnings because I knew that they wanted relationships with me. Uh, one of them told me, um, this thing with Elizabeth is not going to work out. Mm. And um, When she dumps you, then I'll be here. Okay, but, but like no real signs and no warnings she used to treat other partners bad or whatever? I not no, no. I mean, she was new, wasn't she? Right, as we were well. all new so, at college, so at University of Virginia. So there was there was not a backlist <laughs> of former lovers that uh, I could ask. <laughs> uh, how did things go with her? So yeah, and as you know, that led all of this though. Uh, um, the, the the just alone the the testimony at her sentencing hearing, which I read about in these newspaper articles, where she talked about. Uh, all the awful things I had supposedly done, which were completely untrue. And seeing that she was willing to just, you know, say literally anything, no matter how ridiculous, to get her sentence reduced, um, you know, opened my eyes. And um, I spent the next 15 years mostly hating myself um, for having fallen in love with the wrong woman. So until you were 35? Uh, roughly 2000, 2001, yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I know it's kind of strange. I think most people would expect someone in my position to hate Elizabeth, but um, I, I'm, I really hated myself a lot. Um, I, I, it turned out that they did not execute me. It took over three years to, 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 for the European court to stop that. And I was sent back to the United States and of course convicted and sentenced to two life sentences um, to be served consecutively, incidentally, um, said the judge. Um, but obviously I knew that I destroyed my life and I destroyed my life for a woman who clearly did not love me and despised me as a matter of fact. And to me, this made me question whether I could be loved at all whether I was even worthy of love. And um, I, I, I hated myself 
I hated myself really, really, really deeply. And I only came out of that starting in 2000, thereabouts, when I started meditating. And I did that for um, okay. a nine and a half years. But yeah, I, 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 it was self-hatred was a big theme in my life for a long, long time. Were there any possibilities for you to make new experiences to like, I mean, you, you couldn't obviously meet other women, but did, did you have any contact to other women in a romantic way in these 33 years? Uh, with one exception, which I'll talk about later, actually, no. Um, of course, that's the normal way to overcome a traumatic relationship or yeah. a bad experience is to um, go into the next relationship and then hope that it turns out better. Um, you know, you, you, you mend a broken heart by falling in love again, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. But, but that was not possible for me because I was in prison and I was locked up with a, a bunch of hairy men. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I did not have the opportunity to mend in that way and to, to overcome uh, the, the trauma of that relationship for, for three decades. Um, actually, um, the biggest concern I had, especially during the first 10, 12, 15 years, was that um, I, I didn't want to be raped Uh, prison rape is a huge problem okay, in American so it's not prisons. Just, it's it's not just in the in the movies and maybe in jokes or whatever. It's it's really a, a threat. It's huge threat. There are um, statistics about this, and there was congressional testimony about 20 years ago that uh, 10 to 20 percent of the American prison population um, get raped every year. So we're talking about at least 200,000 inmate-on-inmate inmate rapes wow. every year. Um, and again, that's congressional testimony. Did you ever experience like, like this threat or was it just in your head? No, no, no. I, I was directly confronted with this, um, especially in the first uh, 10, 12, 15 years. On Shortly after my arrival at my first American prison, remember I spent on three years, eight months in prison in England before that, But shortly after my arrival in my first American prison, Southampton Reception Center, I actually watched somebody get raped. Did, didn't you have a choice to, to, to inform somebody or to call for help? Or how no, that's not the way happen? that worked. Um, we were actually in a long hallway with cells on each side. And in each door, there was like a window, a slit, right, which had been broken out. So we could look out. And we, all of us, and it, it next, you know, it was diagonally across from my cell, could see that um, an inmate who was, whose job it was to sweep the hallway had dropped his pants and um, inserted his member through the slit in the door into the cell. And that, you know, we could tell from the noise he was making that, you know, he was um, having oral sex performed on him. And... We didn't realize, found out later, that in the cell, one cellmate had pulled a knife on the other one and had forced him at knife point to perform this act on uh, the inmate in the hallway. And um, what we thought was consensual was, in fact, um, a rape, um, at least from our perspective. And of course, The way it works in American prisons is that when somebody's raped, the victim almost never files a complaint. It's extremely rare. Why? Um, they're afraid of being labeled a snitch. Hmm. 
and then they have to go on protective custody. So um, earlier I mentioned there are approximately 200,000 rapes uh, in American prisons every year, um, but only about 6,000 of those 200,000 are ever actually documented. So the overwhelming majority you know, are not registered, not, nobody takes notice. This case was unusual because the victim actually complained. So the guards came around and asked everybody, what did you see? And of course, all of us said, we didn't see anything because if we had seen something, we would have become snitches. And the way that worked out was that the only one who got locked up in segregation, you know, punishment block, was the victim. Why? <laughs> uh, supposedly for his own protection. Oh. So um, he now had the label of being a snitch. And he probably spent the rest of his sentence in segregation, which is hard time. You know, you're isolated, you don't have a TV, all you got is a radio, and you don't see anybody else. It's awful in segregation. But this guy, uh, after he got raped, probably spent the next few years in really bad conditions because, um, yeah, there was no way to prove what had happened. And one of the really interesting things about the way prison rape is documented in the United States is that um, it only counts as a rape if actual violence is used. If it's only under threat of violence, it doesn't count as rape. Yes. And in this particular case, one guy pulled a knife on the other one, but didn't use it. So, you so know, it wasn't even a rape. And it, strictly speaking, it wasn't even a rape under the definition that they use within the correctional system, as crazy as it sounds. So that happened um, you know, very shortly after my arrival uh, in my first American prison. And then a uh, few months after my arrival in my next American prison, um, I very nearly got raped myself. How, how did that happen? And how, how did you not get raped at that moment? Uh, turned out I happened to run across the, the one ethical rapist in the entire <laughs> correctional system. It's a, a halfway amusing story. Do you, do you want to hear it? Yeah, of course. Um, well, it was the end of 1991 and I came out of the shower and um, this huge guy, weightlifter, threw me up against the railing and put me in a wrestling hold called a full Nelson where your arms are kind of stuck up. And uh, he pushed himself against me and he growled in my ear, what you gonna do if I drag you in my cell right now? And... Um, couldn't move, you know, I was completely, the guy was twice my size and I was pinned up against the railing. And I remember looking down to the control booth and down there was the, the female CO, uh, correctional officer. And I remember clearly, it just burned into my memory. She had a little, um, little, bit, of a, a little bit of a mustache. <laughs> and she was, she was reading the National Enquirer and she looked straight into my eyes on the top tier and she licked her finger and turned the page. Wow. And I knew then that, I was not going to be getting any help. So I screamed, and I have no idea what I screamed. But this guy, his name was Joe, let me go. And I ran off to myself. And I didn't report this because you can't report something like that because then you're a snitch. Yeah. But somebody else said something because two days later I was moved to a different pod. So I started, uh, decided I needed to lift weights <laughs> so I could defend myself. And it was winter. And a couple of weeks later, I went to the outside weight pile. And um, weight pile, that's, you know, the weights mm -hmm. on, the, on, the, on the little, behind building four, there's a little uh, uh, rec yard. 
and they had weights there. And I went out there, and it was bitterly cold, and the only other guy out there was Joe. Oh. The guy who had nearly raped me. Yeah. And then did you fight, or did you have an argument, or did you, did you run away? Uh, no. Actually, um, probably my first instinct was to turn around, but couldn't do that. In prison, inmates watch each other all the time. And, uh, you know, even in a situation like that, I knew that somebody was going to be looking from one of the cell windows mm -hmm. over the rec yard with the weights. So I couldn't turn around and go back inside because then somebody would have seen that and then word would have spread that I'm a coward. And if you get the label of being a coward, that's almost worse than having the label of being a snitch. So I had to go out on the rec yard. And the normal thing to do would be to try to attack To attack him. Yes, like that would be... You know, punch him. Yeah, uh, with, well, with yeah, their weights there, so you've got metal, so you can okay. try to brain somebody. But, um, you know, I didn't do that. Instead, I went out there and started lifting weights. And, next to him. Um, exactly, uh, <laughs> next to him. Um, and um, after a while, he started doing bench presses. And for bench pressing, you need a spotter. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of, you know, honor code amongst weightlifters in prison. You know, if, if somebody calls you and says, you know, I need a spot, you got to go do it. There's no just... matter what they did or if they are in. Exactly. No matter what, you got to do it. So I spotted him. And, um, and then it was my turn. And we took a bunch of weights off because I was mm -hmm. nowhere near <laughs> as strong as him. And then I did bench press and he spotted me. So for the next two or three years, we did this maybe two or three times a month we would actually work out together. Would you say you became friends? Or? No, no, we didn't talk much. It was mostly sort of grunting, you know, that you don't yeah. do much. And, and you know, no disrespect to Joe, but he was probably not capable of ex discussing existential philosophy okay. or... He was a basic guy. He was a basic guy, but, you know, really strong and yeah. really big. So good guy to lift weights with. And um, after, you know, I don't know how many months or year, a couple of years, I don't know, I asked him, you know, what the heck was that back then? What, what, what happened? What was that, right? And, and he said to me, um, that's, just, that's just the way it is in prison. Older African-American prisoners take younger white prisoners and they do with them whatever the heck they want. That's just prison life. But me, Joe, I'm different. I'm not a rapist, like all these other guys. I always ask them, what you gonna do if I drag you in my cell right now? And you, Zuring, you're the first guy who ever said no. So I'll let you go, because I'm not a rapist. Crazy, so. Well, he believed it, he believed it. And uh, I he mean, he died of HIV uh, um, oh. in 1995, and of, of AIDS. Um, that, you know, that's, that's widespread problem in prison. So, so he probably caught AIDS in prison by... Yeah, that, it's, it happens. It, back then in the 1990s, um, uh, they did not test everybody. The only prison system that was testing everybody back then was New York. The New York Correctional System tested everybody, and they found 8% had HIV. And the other states did not test everybody, so they came to like you know 0.3%. Because what you don't test for, you don't have to treat. Nobody was interested in finding out how many prisoners actually had HIV. And, and Joe did, and uh, he died in 1995 in Greensville Correctional Center. Um, 
So what would, would you say that Joe um, probably did it not out of a um, sexual um, desire, but out of um, status? Possibly. Like, what, was he gay? Um, I doubt it. I think um, uh, I doubt that very much, um, but I don't know, of course. Mm. Um, what I think is that when you lock relatively young men together in very confined spaces with very limited uh, opportunities to move around, that leads to aggression. Now, you're a psychology student. You mm -hmm. know of these experiments mm -hmm. with rats, actually, because yeah. they're, they're, they're mammals just like we are. If you confine rats in cages uh, and there are too many in there, they get very aggressive. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, you know, too, too much, too close proximity, overcrowding leads to aggression. And in prison, that aggression is expressed through rape. I think it's not sexual. I think it's a form of aggression. And it's a, a way of um, humiliating somebody and asserting power over them. And in the United States, with this whole long history of racism and slavery, um, there, there's definitely uh, an element of revenge Reven involved. Yeah. There is a study by Human Rights Watch called No Escape, Male Rape in U.S. Prisons. That was published, uh, I think, 20 years ago, maybe longer. Um, and they, it's a really interesting study. On the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on this phenomenon. And they actually have interviews with prisoners in there who specifically address this point, saying that, uh, you know, uh, the racism of general American society uh, uh, influenced the way they behaved in prison mm. and motivated them essentially to take revenge. And that's understandable from a human perspective But of course, it's a disaster for the people who are affected. And again, it affects hundreds of thousands of people. And um, it's, it's a really evil, evil thing. And for me, this was a big danger for 15 years. And you know, there was five years <laughs> where I actually worked as a um, loan shark in prison, um, or I worked together with a couple of loan sharks just to defend myself, just to protect myself. I, I formed a kind of an alliance with two really dangerous guys who needed me to improve their cash flow. And that worked, and that gave me a form of protection. And then, we, then I went to a Supermax, and actually at the Supermax, there was no raping going on because oh. the, the, the CEOs were shooting at everybody, everything that moved. <laughs> Where were you shot? I was shot as oh. well with, with a rubber pellet, but still, everybody was getting shot all the time at the Supermax, so there was just no raping going on. <laughs> and then I got transferred from mm. there to another prison that was halfway humane. And um, by that time, I was in my mid-30s. And then this whole thing kind of flipped where other weaker inmates came to me looking for protection. And that's basically, uh, you know, the last 20 years, I was one of the old heads. That's what that's called. Mm. Um, and ended up being a kind of a, you know, sort of in the group that was sort of in the leadership uh, uh, among the inmates And it, 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 yeah, so that, it was no longer a danger for me. But during this time, these first 15 years, they were, you know, especially the first 10 years in American prison, it was a really dangerous time for me. And I'm incredibly lucky uh, not to have been raped 
but um, you know, there was certainly no opportunity for love, which is yeah, that's what I thought because um, you were 19 when you got into prison, and this is the time in most lives where you start experiencing with relationships with different partners with um, yourself maybe like like who am I what what do I want in a relationship and you never had the opportunity and and what you told me was just a very cruel place to um, experience those years yeah exactly yeah and it's 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 there was there's emotions are difficult in prison anyway It's, you know, you can't really trust anybody. In 33 years, I had about three, maybe four guys that I would actually describe as friends. Mm. So you have to, you can't even talk about love with other prisoners. Because if you if you show any kind of emotion, that's immediately exploited um, in some kind of manipulative scheme to, you know, get at you. Either get your money or get your booty. Um, that's, 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 that's what prison is about. That's what prison is about. Um, that and drugs, and I was not involved in drugs, but um, it's it's incredibly lonely, and there's no opportunity for love. And for me personally, you know, the, the biggest thing was, of course, I really had a problem with self hatred and suicidal thoughts because I hated myself so much um, for you know sacrificing myself and my freedom and my life. Somebody who betrayed you and never loved me at all. Yeah. And um, so then that started changing in 2000 when I started meditating. And then in 2003, my first book was published. And um, I, I, published, I had six book, books published while I was in prison. And uh, a young woman who read the book visited me towards the end of 2003 And then after the visit, she wrote me a letter. She said that she loved me. She oh. wanted to come back to visit me. And she did. And at the end of the second visit, we kissed. So you fell in love as well. Yes. Yes. She was very pretty and um, and loved my book. And, you know, so. Um, and we um, had a sort of a long distance relationship. Every few months, she would come and visit me. And, uh, of course, you're not allowed to touch somebody in the visiting room except at the very beginning and at the very end because from the, from the guard's perspective, any physical contact is going to be used for transferring drugs. So, um, uh, you know, this was, these were short kisses, mm. <laughs> um, but they were, of course, very wonderful, meaningful. wonderful. The first kisses after 17 years in prison... You know, I, I um, you know, the last previous kiss was probably sometime during the day um, of my arrest with Elizabeth Hayson, and then that was an, you know, in April '86, April 30th, and then 17 years later was the next kiss with this young woman who had read one of my books. You probably weren't the best kisser. Um, we'll have to ask her. <laughs> I mean, Actually, after 17 no. years, or did, did you practice with, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not practice, Dominic. <laughs> I don't know how one would do that, but maybe you can in, in, inform me after. The relationship at, lasted about a year and a half from the end of 86 to the beginning of 2005. So, so, for, sorry, from the end of 2003 mm -hmm. to the beginning of 2005. And you know, she was very attractive and there were other men out there. 
yeah. who were not in prison, so she couldn't wait any longer. And I'm glad she didn't wait because she would have had to wait another 15 years yes. for me to get free. And last I heard, she's married and living in New York. And I Have you ever had contact to her again? No, 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 no. no. I, I hope she's having a great life. And uh, she certainly doesn't need me in it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the end result of that, though, was that I decided when that relationship ended in 2005 that I would um, never, ever have another long-distance romance in prison because, you know, it hurt me, broke my heart, mm -hmm. and it hurt her. And I didn't want to do that to somebody else. So this one, this one romantic relationship time. from 2003 to 2005, um, that was it. And then, again, 14 years without kisses. And yes, hugs. that's right. And um, it's, it's, it's been a life under the shadow of a romance gone really mm -hmm. wrong, a really toxic, toxic relationship, um, and a life without love. Was, was there a way for you to cope with, 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 with um, the lack of um, physical touch and stuff? Because I remember when uh, COVID started to go around and we had this lockdown in Germany and nobody was allowed to meet each other. I think there was a time where I probably didn't get like very like a hug or something for two or three weeks because I was just uh, chilling in my room doing stuff, but not meeting others, especially um, I, I didn't have a girlfriend back then. And so I, I really felt like something was lacking, but this was only two or three weeks. Um, at, at some point, does it stop hurting or does it stop um, missing? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't think so. Um, I know that back in the 1990s, a, uh, you know, guards in Virginia, correctional officers, mm. are paid very badly. So quite a few of them supplement their income by smuggling in drugs and back then pornographic magazines. Um, um, and then that changed over the decades. Now, nobody does magazines anymore. Um, the thing that most people don't realize is that you know, the, the cell phones that are smuggled into prison um, nowadays um, are sometimes used for telephone calls, but mostly they're used for pornography. <laughs> I mean, I can understand. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, um, and, and I mean, I had a, had a pal, um, um, uh, in the last few years in, in, in prison, uh, in Virginia, who was, um, a young African-American man who was actually, um, a trained violinist. He had, mm. he was actually a college student at studying music because he was so good at violin and he destroyed his life and came to prison. And um, he managed to get hold of one of these illegal cell phones and uh, some gang members uh, came into his cell with a knife and robbed him mm. and he got cut really bad on his hand oh. and didn't snitch. And that earned him so much respect that he then was able to join the gang, <laughs> right? Um, because he's a stand-up guy, right? Yeah. But if you think how the tragedy of this young man's life, that he was so good at violin that he was actually at a scholarship to, uh, that he was studying violin, and then he ends up in prison fighting over his cell phone for watching mm. pornography, 
and getting stabbed and then joining a gang. You know, that's, that's a tragic, tragic story. And unfortunately, pretty typical for what happens in prison. But that's my damn life. Let's talk yeah. about yours. Um, you're, um, um, you, unlike me, um, have had the opportunity to uh, uh, have relationships and experience love. You're half my age, roughly speaking. Um, and of course, with you, there's this interesting factor, um, a little bit like me, that you're in the public eye. Mm. So I imagine you get a lot of young women and possibly also a few young men <laughs> contacting you on Instagram or whatever. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, I think before I I took part in this um, in this television show, I yeah, think just I had a brief explanation. That's the German equivalent yeah. of America's Got Talent. Exactly. And he made it to the right to the very end. So yeah, a the, lot of people in Germany know Dominic and recognize him. And he's in addition to that a really damn good singer. <laughs> so there's a reason to admire him and, to, <laughs> you know, for little teeny girls to love, fall in love with him. So, to, <laughs> so you got, so you got, yeah, not I, just tell us. Well, well, so, so before I, I just had like a normal dating life, I would say. So there were times where I had a girlfriend, there were times when I was single for longer than I wanted or where I had, had no partner or whatever. Um, but as the show started and as it was broadcasted, like like the very first episode, when it was broadcasted, my um, social media channels, they were... Um, exploded. Yeah, they exploded with um, messages. Um, a lot of them just uh, telling me that they liked it. They liked the, the singing or whatever. But also a lot of um, women and men um, making offers to... Um, to date or maybe even more than that. Yeah. So I, I had like a lot of um, people trying to uh, contact me and to meet me, which was a little bit weird because usually when you grow up as a boy, I think it's your position to chase after girls or boys if you're homosexual um, and not to get that many um, people approaching offers. you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, this placed me in another position that I've never been before in, in that way. And so, yeah, it was a little bit weird, but I, 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 never, um, I never took any of these offers serious, or at least it wasn't interesting for me, because I think when you show yourself in a television show, you only show a small part of you. And the people seeing you and liking you they just see that part and they maybe they put more in it than you showed. So maybe they um, have a desire for, I don't know, somebody who's very humble and very understanding. And I mean, maybe you can be the person, but it's not what you show in the TV show. They So they project a lot of their own desires into you. And um, at the other, on, on the other hand, you don't... Uh, you don't show everything from you. You just show like the performer, the singer, the um, the funny Artist, dude. Yeah, yeah. But but you don't show them like the the ups and downs. You just show the ups, and it's a little bit overwhelming when somebody knows a lot about you because there's a lot on the media and stuff. But they don't really know you as a person, but they think they do. So there's a kind of a discrepancy, an yeah. inequality in the information 
So some, some of these fans, uh, girls and boys who approach you, think they know you and yeah, they, they do don't. know something about you, but you know absolutely nothing about them. Yes. So you're kind of in a position of, let's say, informational weakness. Yeah, and also in a weird um, situation of power. I mean, there may be some people who like to um, abuse this, that there are people that really... Um, idolize you and would do anything to spend time with you or whatever but for me it was always very important that my partner or opposite um is is, is on the same level and that i can look up to them in a way as well or at least uh not not look down and and or, or, i mean if somebody is really idolizing you and looking up to you it's very hard to um be on the same level and therefore It never came to my mind to meet somebody or... Um, that, that's wrote, written you on Instagram or something like that. But have you been approached in bars or in public events or something like that? Sometimes, and it happens um, sometimes when I have a gig. And it, it doesn't probably even um, have to do with the television show. So they just see me. And when I have a gig, for example, at a wedding or at a um, concert or whatever, I dress nice and I, uh, I, I I make my hair and stuff and I try to look professional and I like I want to look good as somebody who um, yeah performer yeah exactly and um, sometimes I get men saying oh I have a daughter don't you want to meet her you're a very handsome guy and uh, sometimes people telling me yeah you're very cute or whatever and I mean it's cool but sometimes it's a little bit um, too much because I'm there for my music and for singing and sometimes you you don't want to engage with these people on this level maybe because you are in a relationship but maybe also because you um it, you don't it, want it, it right now it just skips like a lot of the steps you usually take when um finding a partner that's really interesting um I I I imagine that must be really difficult, especially when you're at a stage in your life where you're still kind of finding out, to some extent, I would suppose, who you really are, that people project things onto you. Um, do, do you find that difficult? Um, the difference between your public persona and who you are as a private person, do you find it difficult to navigate between the two? Well, I think the public persona is exposing some parts of my um of my person um to the public so it's 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 part of me like singing and performing and uh being so it's the real mood. you it's the real yeah, you it's, but it's, it's only it's, a part of you yeah exactly so it's it's a part of me it's like uh, a piece of the puzzle but it's not uh, the whole picture so um i don't think it's very um hard for me to um include this picture into my um into my conception of myself because it is a part of it but when people think of me when they only see me on tv or whatever um they just see this part and they don't know about like many other parts i, I wouldn't say it's, it's hard to um to get these together but it just makes you a little bit um distanced from these people i think because there is this 
it's difficult. It's difficult to unite the two. Exactly. Um, uh, the, the public persona, which is only a part of you, and then the whole Dominic. Yeah. yeah something like that. I, I think maybe you experienced the same things when people know you from your case or from maybe even after you got out of prison because, I mean, then you weren't like the murderer. You were the victim in a way, or you could have been for some people at least. Well, it, with me, there's a there's a great big split in this perception of me as a person. Um, you know, I, it's a fact that I was wrongfully convicted and uh, it's a fact that this wrongful conviction was not overturned. So these are two great injustices that I have to live with. Um, and I have to live with them in Germany where, you know, some people um, understand uh, uh, that I was, you know, I've got myself into this situation. Our subject today is love. I got myself into the situa situation because of a really toxic relationship and a romance that went terribly wrong. But it's a fact that um, I was also in some sense a victim of the, of the criminal justice system over there. Mm -hmm. And then of course there are other people who for reasons that I cannot understand seem to believe that the American criminal justice system makes no mistakes and that I was properly convicted and they like pointing the finger at me and you know calling me a killer and stuff like that. And my experience has been that when people meet me, mm -hmm. very, very quickly, all of these questions disappear. Yeah. And uh, that's why I value in-person meetings. It's very easy to hate somebody on the internet. Yeah. Um, and uh, because all the digital media deal with images and they deal with surfaces. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast with you because mm. I want people to see the real me. And when people do see the real me or listen to the real me here, um, a lot of questions are answered very, very quickly. Yeah, I think so as well. And, and you get like a feeling for the person you're listening yes. to. And I'm sure that same thing applies to you when you meet fans um, uh, 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 that take the time to get to know you a little bit and get beyond the um, you know young star on stage who's incredibly talented and and you know pardon me for saying this really good looking um, <laughs> and then actually get to, get to know you as as a guy you know yeah. as, as as a person as who usual. has other interests. And you know, really interesting thing about you is that you're you know you're studying psychology, and you know are a really educated person. You just finished your one de first degree, and you now you're working on your second degree. So there's that whole aspect of you, um, which I enjoy because of course mm. I used to be a psychology student decades ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, you know we're dealing with different worlds in the media and in reality. And uh, I think love takes place in reality. And uh, yeah, you know, one of the questions I have for you is, is, you know, you don't just cover other people's songs. Mm -hmm. You also write music and you write songs and you write about love, I assume. And um, do you want to maybe tell me whether there are certain songs of your own or perhaps also from others about love that are particularly meaningful for you? I think... Probably every single song I wrote about love is like, at least the inspiration for the song was out of my own life. It's not just telling what happened in a song and then putting it out, but just um, 
you 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 maybe you are in a situation where you are you just fell in love or you recently broke up or whatever and this evokes very strong emotions in you and you try to um handle these emotions and i think one way is putting them into a song and so every song has has a foundation in something that happened in real life i would say in a in a relationship or whatever and um so every song is linked to somebody i would say maybe there are some songs linked to some people maybe other people didn't get a song because it wasn't that emotional or whatever but it's funny because um when when i sing them and especially um when i sing them in front of audiences who don't know about it it's 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 yeah this twist that they just hear the song and whatever happens in the song and i think of what really happens what's lying underneath and maybe about um maybe about the emotions so i would say every single song is linked maybe to a person or to somebody that's interesting because um i just um spent some time um recording an audiobook yeah and it's one of my own books and it's actually a book that i wrote in the very early 1990s it was published much later decades later and the chapters from that book that i recorded as an audiobook um cover the relationship with elizabeth hasen mm. that's the subject of the audiobook so that's a little bit like a love song except of course you know it's 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 love song gone terribly wrong um it's but it's again using art to deal with emotions and specifically emotions having to do with love and um you know um i found that this was a painful process for me um, the events that the book covers are now gosh 38 39 years ago and at the time i wrote the book that was about 32 years ago um so pretty close to the events at, uh, that I'm describing in the book and you know a, a great deal has happened in my life since then I spent decades in prison and I spent a few years out here in freedom and um reading about my own feelings from back then mm. when the feelings were pretty raw still and especially I included letters from Elizabeth and stuff in this book that I'm reading aloud for the audiobook and having to confront those emotions again um you know i'm i'm going to guess that listeners are going to find it entertaining yeah. but for me it was mostly painful but maybe it can also be some kind of therapy maybe maybe that's that's an interesting question whether art is therapeutic for the artist yeah, I mean, is it for you is it for you well i think it is in the moment i'm writing because i feel like i can tell it to somebody even though in that moment nobody except for me is listening but i know that it's written down and um i had the possibility to speak out about it and now i can move on to the next thing so i think this is one therapeutic part um but i think also when when you can look back on it later then you then it can help um putting it into the right place in your mind so you can um maybe understand it more and that can help you deal with the emotions that evoke when you think about it again yeah that's interesting uh that that comes up a lot in my my work i'm i'm you know my in my day job i'm a i'm a coach mm -hmm. 
and one of the areas I work in is um, toxic relationships because, um, you know, I had probably <laughs> one of those toxic relationships of all times <laughs> and, 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 and I overcame it. I survived it yeah. and I came out on the other side and I'm, I'm okay and I'm happy now in my life. But that wasn't easy and it took a long time. And, um, and in, in, in fact, it's not really ever completely over, which goes back to your point. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's very difficult for people who are in a toxic relationship to even recognize mm -hmm. that it's toxic. Um, and that's one of the first things I do with my clients as a, as a coach is, you know, let's evaluate what's going on here. Because they yeah. often come to me with a sense that something is not right in my relationship. And I want to talk to somebody and find out whether my feelings are actually correct or whether I'm just imagining things. So, you know, based on that determination initially, that we then look at what can be done just practically uh, to get out of that relationship because mm -hmm. that's often very, very difficult. And many people stay in toxic relationships because they think it's better to stay in a relationship that's bad rather than leave and move on to something new. Yeah. And then after you leave a relationship, of course, there's a healing process afterwards. And for me, that healing process took place in prison over decades. Um, but you have to go through this healing process and this has to do with grief. You know, I, I've spent a great deal of time about, with all of this. I had time, but grieving is a really important part also with toxic relationships. Um, you know, grieving for the time you lost, grieving for the possibilities that will never be realized, grieving to what was done to you, grieving for the other person who could have perhaps been a better person, mm. you know, and, 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 um, and these kinds of questions can be reflected in art, in, in your songs and in my books. And that's important because we're human beings and we share our stories. That's, that's you know, when you, you know, you, you and I are both interested in psychology and, and um, you know, it's related to anthropology. And, you know, what did, what did the first humans do? You know, we, we sat around fires at night and told, told each stories. other stories, yeah. right? Or sang each other songs. <laughs> you know, that's what probably the earliest humans did, right? They were running around in the daylight, you know, looking for stuff to eat. And then at nighttime, sang songs and told stories. That's what we do. And, and that's we, what we do with this podcast. Probably. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, the listeners, want to write us, um, presumably Dominic, who's in charge of all the technology, <laughs> will um, provide some opportunity for you to send us comments. And maybe you want to tell us about your relationships, your love, both good and bad, and whether art, either in song like Dominic or writing as with me or perhaps even painting or something like that, mm. whether art can help you through, the, through all this. So we're getting close to the end here, Dominic. So well. Do you wanna uh, have a final word on the subject of love? I think maybe I'm I'm too young to understand it, um, like like the whole love thing and the whole relationship thing, and maybe you and maybe nobody will ever figure it out entirely. But I think 
part of the whole journey is to try and to fail and to make experiences which may also be bad i mean they don't have to be as bad as yours <laughs> no but i think sometimes um feeling the negative sides of love it's also a very important part of life that's a really interesting point and actually you you, you sound a little bit like me in my other subject as a coach because i also do resilience yes. work and what you just said fits right in with my resilience coaching um, but, um, yeah, it's important to, to know about yourself that all of us as human beings, we're all going to fall down. And the question is, do we get back up again? Yeah. Do we try again? And for me, after 33 years in prison for love, the big lesson is, is that love can be really painful. Yeah. It can be really, really difficult. But even worse than that is a life without love at all. I would agree, yeah. And with that, we'll wrap up this podcast. Next week, we're going to be talking about music. Yeah. Taylor Swift and Nina Simone <laughs> and uh, the Talking Heads and Screaming Jay Hawkins and... The Red Hot Chili Peppers, I don't know. There we we'll go. We'll see. There are a lot of things. Linkin Park, don't forget Linkin Park. Oh, yeah. That's, that's one of our few musical tastes that we really share. <laughs> I really enjoyed uh, recording this episode with you and I'm looking forward for next week. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. Till then, bye. bye.